Hello, friends. It's your pal, Brad, interrupting your regularly scheduled program to bring you a road episode. And as you know, when we record in the car, that means the audio quality is not as good as it normally is here in the Love Nest. Our plan to release episode one in our sex criminals conversation was put on hold because I turned 40 years old. And when you turn 40 years old, a lot of distractions come along the way and they prevented us from recording our sex criminals conversation. But do not worry, that conversation is coming soon. And I did not want to deprive you of this really wonderful chat that Lisa and I had as we returned from the Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester, Virginia, having just screened the 1998 classic comic book movie, Blade, starring Wesley Snipes, directed by Stephen Norrington and written by David S. Goyer. So there you go. Without further ado, let's get into the show. I really hope you like this one, and we will get back to Sex Criminals next week. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each week, we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. This week, we are celebrating all things Brad Gullickson for his 40th birthday and the 1998 classic comic book film, Blade. We literally just left the theater. We hosted Blade as part of our Still Awesome series at the Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester, Virginia in uh, co-production with the In the Mouth of Darkness podcast. And yeah, this we kicked off year two of Still Awesome. We've been doing this series at the Alamo for a year. We started with Men in Black. Uh, we've screened things like Attack the Block, uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Ghost Zodiac, World. Ghost World, a lot of comic book movies it turns <laughs> Memento. out. Memento, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and we kicked off this year with Blade. Uh, yeah, I, You know, I love Blade. I love Blade. Part two. <laughs> I love Blade 2. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies from director Guillermo del Toro. The 1998 movie I always liked, but something about it just never really clicked with me. It was the second film, and you know, it was that marriage of Marvel's Daywalker with Guillermo del Toro's comic book style and obsession combined that I just really, really, really fell for. And I, I love Wesley Snipes and. Uh, well, in pretty much anything, but I love his character of Blade as seen in the second one. And he's actually, having just watched the first movie, still pretty darn cool in the first movie as well. Um, Lisa, where where have you... Where, where Where's your headspace been with the character of Blade before today? Uh, you know, I know I've shown you Blade 2. I, yeah, I've only seen Blade 2, and I enjoy Blade 2. I wouldn't say, like, oh, it's one of my favorite comic book movies or anything. I've enjoyed it. But I found Blade 1 tonight not without its charms. Oh, yeah, I, I liked Blade 1 more than I've ever liked it before, and it helps seeing it on the big screen at the Alamo for sure. And the, the crowd turned out for it. It was one of our biggest screenings. Yeah, one of our biggest screenings. You know, just coincidentally, it turns out that, you know, the MCU is going to reintroduce the character for a big screen audience with Mahershala Ali. We did not plan it that way. We planned this screening months ago before that was ever announced at Comic-Con. And I think it has re-energized... Uh, a, the audience, uh, uh, the uh, a, a boat is literally cutting me off right now. A boat in the middle of the street is cutting your, me off. On your birthday. On my birthday. How dare, how dare it. Uh, but, you know, there's a new energy in the air for the character of Blade, thanks to the announcement of Rehearsal Ali. And I'm super excited to see what uh, he brings to the character. But he's always going to be Wesley Snipes for me. Uh, the comic book character originally came out 
in the Tomb of Dracula series, uh, written by Marv Wolfman and illustrated by Gene Colan. He, you know, he came out as an antagonist for the series character of Dracula. But I never read those comics. And I didn't start reading Blade comics till well after 1998. And from what I gather, the Blade pre-1998 is very different than the Blade we've seen in the comic books since then. Basically, the success of the New Line cinema film revolutionized the character itself. And I, I don't even think he was a half-breed before the film. I think screenwriter David S. Goyer brought that element to the story. So he was... So was he full-on vampire? No, no, or he was just dude? a full-on dude, badass vampire killer. That's my impression. Oh. If I'm wrong, tweet at me. But I believe that to be the case. Uh, and he was, you know, the comic book version was very much a black exploitation knockoff. He was a vampire hunter version of Fred the Hammer Williamson, or you know, Jim Brown Slaughter, or somebody like that. Uh, and, and you know, written in the '70s with a very white dude trying to do jive dialogue. Oh it's it, it, those early comics, not 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 my thing. I've, I've gone back and I've read some of them. I don't love them. A lot of the comic books after 1998, I've grown to appreciate. Uh, I think my favorite comic book interpretation of the character, though, is probably Mark Millar's take in the Ultimates universe. Uh, it's another slightly problematic version, but I really enjoy his uh, uh, ag aggressive lack of morality in that, in that book. But if I'm going to be honest, the Blade, as portrayed by Wesley Snipes in Blade 2, is my favorite Blade. You know, the 1998 film gets a lot of credit for basically being the starting point for the current cultural landscape of comic book movies that we're living in today. And uh, I understand why a lot of folks would give the film that credit. You gotta remember, like, in 1989, when Batman came out, the Tim Burton film, and it exploded. It was a massive blockbuster. Lisa, did you see Batman as a child? You would have been, like, five years old? No, I did not <laughs> see the... I did see some of the Batman films, like, as a child, but I don't think I saw any of them in the theater. I was ten years old when the first Tim Burton Batman movie came out, and I remember those lines. I remember how insane the marketing around that film was. You saw that Bat logo everywhere. And, you know, cereal and posters and, and you know, it, it was just, it, it, it ruled that whole year of 1989 as far as, I concern, as I'm concerned. And it made a ton of money for Warner Brothers and DC Comics. And Marvel Comics at the time didn't have anything like that cinematically. You know, they wanted their Batman and really, their success was on TV with the Incredible Hulk show. You know, they had a failed Spider-Man show. They had a failed Doctor Strange show. In 1990, they tried to put out a Captain America movie, direct a video, but it's total garbage starring J.D. Salinger's son, Matt Salinger. Oh, it's we watched that at uh, so Darren's bad. house. It was so the bad. Worst. It's the worst. Uh, and, and, you know, this was also at the height of the comic book market and Marvel was killing it in the early 90s that's when you know Chris Claremont and Jim Lee were writing uh, the adjectiveless X-Men title and it sold like 8 million copies the most a comic book has ever sold at, at, ever but Marvel didn't have that presence in the larger pop culture landscape oh shit a and deer I missed the deer that's good I'm glad I didn't hit that deer <laughs> uh so they were looking for their Batman and they purchased the trading card company uh, uh, oh god Ultra Fleer and you know trading cards were gangbusters as well but then that bubble burst and the trading card company turned out to be a really terrible purchase and the comic book market was failing and Marvel found itself in bankruptcy and in 1993, 1994, they had partnered with Toy Biz, the toy company, uh, Ike Perlmutter. He's in the news lately, uh, if you want to 
look up monsters. Uh, <laughs> want to get real depressed. Yeah, he's want to get real depressed. Uh, you know, uh, rock on Art Spiegelman is all I got to say. Uh, Ike Perlmutter, Toy Biz, made a deal with Marvel to license their characters and try to make a dent in the Hollywood. And they made a bunch of cartoons, and the cartoons were pretty darn successful. But again, they couldn't get that movie. And they sold the rights to X-Men. They sold the rights to 20th Century... Uh, to, they sold the rights to X-Men to 20th Century Fox. They sold the rights to Spider-Man, to Sony, Columbia Pictures. They sold the rights to Blade, to New Line Cinema. And in the early 90s, Blade, with New Line Cinema, they were looking to make it as a spoof, something like the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But again, that never really got off the ground. Time moves on. 1996, to save Marvel, Toy Biz merges with Marvel Entertainment and pulls them out of bankruptcy. Avi Arad's the CEO of Toy Biz, and he's still pushing hard to get Marvel properties into Hollywood. And the first Marvel character, really, to come to the big screen is Blade. Now, the year before Men in Black came out, Men in Black uh, started out as an aerosol comics uh, Malibu? Yeah, well, it's Aerosol, and then it was Malibu. They were purchased by Malibu, and then Marvel purchased Malibu. So technically, Men in Black was, a Marvel movie. was, was a Marvel movie. Oh. And if you watch Men in Black, you can see the credits where it's credited as based on a Marvel comic. But again, it's got to have an asterisk there. It's a technicality. The first true, uh, well, the first new superhero, the new Marvel character of this age is Blade. You know, Howard the Duck had come out before. Red Sony has connections to Marvel at the time as well. But Blade was like the big go. And Blade, you know, there, it was uh, made for $30 million, $36 million, something like that. And it was a tremendous success. It, it like tripled its budget domestically. And Marvel saw, hey, we can make money with our tertiary characters. You know, we don't need the X-Men. We don't need Spider-Man to make bank. We can, you know, make a great movie with Iron Man, for example. But Iron Man, he's hardly a character at all. <laughs> I mean, Iron Man certainly was a bigger character in the comic books than Blade was. <laughs> you know, if you can make a successful movie with Blade, you can make a successful movie with anybody. And since 1998, Marvel has proven that when they branched out with Marvel Studios, got bought by Disney, and Rocket Raccoon's running around, right? Yeah. So, like, Marvel's got the golden touch. It's all about script, quality, performance, uh, direction, you know, attitude, confidence, and character. Yes. And that's what Blade proved. And so, really, that's what I give credit to Stephen Norrington's Blade and, and how it ushered in the new wave of comic book movies. Watching it today, it's a little dated. Lisa, what do you think? A little little 90s. Uh, in a way that I really find fun. Oh, I really? really appreciate it. Like, the fact that all... Like, it just opens with a 90s rave. <laughs> Gotta love that. Looks oh, that blood rave is so cool. Looks exactly like the bronze, but more <laughs> blood. Um, there was that twisty thing women were doing with their hair and then it was like uh -huh. all spiky Gwen Stefani style. Yep, yep, yep. I liked that. The CG CG's very a little old rough. School. Yeah, <laughs> CG, like that's not my favorite era of computer graphics for sure. There's also like a sequence where uh, Blade is tailing a police officer who is a human familiar to Stephen Dorff's Deacon Frost mm -hmm. and the camera sped up. Yeah, there's like this weird frenetic something. Do not like that. No. It <laughs> but, took me out of it a little bit. You know, like, I, when people say like, oh, that movie's a little dated. Well, of course, the moment you make a movie, it becomes dated. All movies are dated. Just some have a little more elasticity in their cinematic relevance, I guess. Uh, stylistic relevance. And Blade feels very 90s. Also, the super 90s cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I super enjoyed Donald Logue so as good. Quinn. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like the dopey stoner sidekick to Stephen Dorff's Deacon Frost. Yep. I thought he was super funny. So the film opens up in 1966 with a flashback to the birth of Eric Brooks, a.k.a. Blade. 
His mother, played by Sanaa Lathan, is bitten on the neck, and as she's bleeding out and dying, she gives birth to a hybrid child who grows up to have the thirst of a vampire and the strength of a vampire, but he can walk around in daylight. He's immune to garlic and silver. You know, he's the best of both worlds, I guess, except he does have the hunger. Yeah, and he has some guilt over having eaten a couple of homeless people back in the day. Yeah, he was rescued by Whistler, played by Chris Christopherson, when he was 13 years old, and he had been munching on, munching on some homeless people. Uh, but, uh, you know, But Chris Whistler, Christopherson, he restored him, he became this paternal figure for him. And so that first scene where we see Tracy Lords as a, a vampire maven bringing uh, a poor hapless human to the to the rave which turns into a blood rave so they can all feed on him that sequence is great yes uh you know I, there's a shot where the human it, you know he starts to feel like little droplets of blood on his cheek and he touches it and he gives it a taste you should never touch any red Why? liquid yes, that falls anything on your face. falling from the ceiling of a greasy club do not taste it it's gonna give you syphilis yeah yeah it probably is blood always assume <laughs> that it's blood if it's red and, and like you know you know what blood feels like but <laughs> this guy uh, gives it a lick that guy by the way I believe plays lemon in the S.H.I.E.L.D. TV series. No way! Yeah. Uh, so, but there's a shot, right? Right right while he's touching the, the blood and tasting the blood, and you realize that he's surrounded by vampires mm -hmm. because all these dancers raise their hands into the air before the blood geysers rain down upon them. Yeah, they know what's coming. They know what's... And, like, the, the shot of the hands coming up as he's confused, really freaky. Uh, that... that bothered me in a way it had never bothered me before while watching the film and I loved that sensation you really did get a sense of community with these vampires the fact that they become kind of this uh, Illuminati group yep, yep, yep. where they have their evil little fingers in every pie they have they control the cops they control the government the they impression I got was that Vampires are probably in the minority uh, 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 compared to humans, mm -hmm. but and, and they're they're working in the shadows. But because of their immortality and their the wealth that comes with it, they have infected all the government uh, systems. Yes, yes, but there is like a tier, right? Because there are the pure blood vampires. These yes. are vampires who were never human. They were born vampires. Yeah, represented primarily by Udo, Udo Kier. Kier. I love Udo Kier. I mean, we all love Udo Kier. He's so dreamy. The first actor I ever interviewed for Film School Rejects. That's true! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love, love, love Udo Kier. Super nice dude. For the 15 minutes I got to chat with him, I had fantastic And he just, he just looks like a vampire. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, when you uh, listen to him talk about Blade, he basically says the only reason he's there is because Stephen Norrington liked the Andy Warhol blood for Dracula. Movie. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, good for Stephen Norrington. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fun. Yeah, I think it's fun. So you have the pure bud, bloods. Yes. And then you have the half-breeds, or the, the the tainted blood. Yeah, the, the turn. The turn. And, and that's the, represented by Stephen Dorff as Deacon Frost. Stephen Dorff, also an embodiment of the 90s. Yeah, but... He's got that, like, pasty 90s bod. I always kind of... Um, I don't think I ever properly respected Stephen Dorff. But having watched the recent season of True Detective on HBO with Mahershala Ali, nice. uh, he's amazing in that season. And watching this movie tonight, I really loved Stephen Dorff's interpretation of Deacon Frost. Yeah. Very, like, Weasley, angry and justified. I, I loved it. Like, when he's having those converse, conversations with Udo Kier, you're on Stephen Dorff's side. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that he knows he's being underestimated yep. because of who he is. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that, and he's like a young guy, he has the wherewithal to use computers. Yes. To translate that vampire Bible, I can't remember what it was yeah, called. Yeah, 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 like the, the, all those glyphs and whatnot. So that he could unlock the prophecy. Yeah, Lamagra, the blood god. Yes. Uh, now, the way the film works is it goes from 
the blood rave sequence mm-hmm. where Blade shows up, saves Lemon from the shield, kills a ton of people with a combination of kung fu skills, which Wesley Snipes is a you know a genuine master of, and uh, sword play, right. and machine gun fire. Yeah, and actual fire. And, and actual fire. He pins Donald Logue to a wall and lights him on fire and walks away, letting him resurrect in the hospital hours later. I, I never quite understood why Quinn in particular as a character was like unkillable. Uh, well, he wasn't unkillable. Because why didn't... Because this is... He was lit on fire and that doesn't kill a vampire. Yeah, but I mean... He was staked Blade, in the shoulders. Yeah, but Blade staked him to the wall. By the shoulders, not the heart. I know, but why didn't he stake him in the heart? Well, that's what I'm saying. Blade is an asshole. Blade, in not killing uh, Quinn, and not finishing the job and just torturing him and playing with him, and the impression you get is that he's had many encounters with Quinn before this movie has even started. Right. And he always lets him go. But he... He lets Quinn go. Because he goes right to Deacon. Oh, I'm seeing And Quinn wakes up in the morgue. Oh, yeah. Bites, um, uh, what's the character's name? Karen. Karen. Bites Karen on the neck. Kills the other mortician, or we think he kills the other mortician. Let's call, he turns the other mortician, it turns out, into a ghoul. And then Blade shows up at the hospital and goes like, I'm here to finish the job. But because Blade did that, he... You know, causes great pain to Karen and that poor mortician. Right. So bad, Blade. Bad. You're causing more pain than good, maybe. But lucky for him, she is a hematologist. Yeah. She's a blood doctor. So when he returns her to his lair and Chris Christopherson's there and he gives her some kind of garlic infusion yep. to help keep her from turning... Um, but she's able to study what uh, vampire venom does to the blood, <laughs> right. and she's able to come up with a cure that she uh, is able to use on herself. Plus, she makes that um, blue knot serum. Yeah, yeah. The, the, she makes a fluid that turns vampire blood into explosive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she uses the word anticoagulant. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, very yeah. scientific. Very to me. scientific. Um, and, and that comes into great CG effect at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it, like it balloons people. Yeah, uh, it's like the CG equivalent of the uh, three storms explosion at the end of Big Trouble in Little China. Thank you. I for some reason I was just blanking on that title. Today. Yeah, yeah. Practical effects always win. Just FYI. Yes. Uh, so okay. But now Karen, Blade, and Whistler are this little trio, and they're on the hunt for Deacon Frost. And you, you learn that Blade and Whistler have been going city to city, hunting down the vampire virus, killing who they can uh, as often as they can. Yes. And let's see. They track Deacon by following a familiar who was also following Karen wanting to finish the job for her because she's a witness, I guess, to the vampire lifestyle. I don't understand why they would want to go back and kill Karen. I don't know. Yeah, but anyway, so... uh, I guess because they... I guess they knew that Blade had her because of reasons? Because of reasons. So a police officer who's actually a vampire familiar for Deacon Frost goes to kill her, but again, Blade's in there, pops up, He's been using her as bait. She's yep. a little annoyed at the time. She gets over it. And, you know, Blade beats up the cop familiar. And then they follow him back to another club that's run by this Jabba the Hutt vampire named Pearl, who's really upsetting looking. Yeah, well, Pearl is some kind of, like, librarian archivist. Yeah, she's a historian. Yes. Like a vampire historian. And she has been uh, putting the pieces together regarding La Magra, the blood god. Yes. Who Deacon Frost wants to awaken so that he can basically rule over all vampires and humanity. Yeah. And Blade tortures 
Uh, Pearl, actually, he gets Karen to torture Pearl. And she gets real into it with the... Um, UV lamp. Yes. And uh, Pearl has this real high-pitched scream, <laughs> very upsetting as well. There's lots of moments, actually, in this movie that I found much creepier today than I ever have in the past. I mean, that is a true, you know, torture sequence. And Karen takes out her rage and frustration of what they've done to her on Pearl. And it's a, it's a little nasty. It's a little ugly. It's a horror movie. It, it, it's not just, I mean, it's not yeah. a superhero movie. It's a horror well, movie. I think that's one of the reasons why Blade was so successful because it was this blend of many genres. It was a martial arts film. It was a horror film. It was an action film. It was a comic book superhero film. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it plays like... Um, like what the Matrix would ultimately be a couple years later, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I think the Matrix and Blade are tapping into uh, a cultural zeitgeist in the late '90s. Absolutely, yeah. So from uh, Pearl, Blade gets a better idea of what's happening. He, you know, starts to research the La Magra, and is this when? Deacon Frost has that confrontation with him in the daily. Oh, Deacon Frost kills Udo Kier's vampire. That he, he does. It, they come up with like a uh, sunblock. sunblock. <laughs> I still don't like that idea. <laughs> to, to me, it just seems like, well, why hadn't anybody thought of that before? Well, because science had to catch up with them. And it's so translucent. Like, to me, I feel like it should look like a clay mask. Yeah, so Deacon Frost's little gang, including Quinn and that blonde British girl, they're all wearing the sunblock. I don't sun think block. she's British. I feel like she's, like, Russian or something, or Eastern European. Well, she's Eastern. I, I think she's English. I think she's from Stephen Norrington's clan of actors. But she, that, it's, she doesn't have a British accent. At one point, I felt like she did. Well, oh, okay. Look her up on she IMDb, has, She folks. has an accent. She definitely has a European accent. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> uh, uh, so they all kill Udo Kier, and they take him out to the ocean, and have him look out at the horizon as the sun rises, and uh, that's a cool scene. I thought I thought the CG of that effect of him deteriorating and popping and crisping and exploding eventually, I thought that was handled really well. And when the sun fully comes out, they have to put like leather on and motorcycle helmets right. uh, on top of their uh, sunblock. But then like later, he's like standing straight out in daylight. I guess he put a few more layers, uh, you know, the, the, the it was 480 proof, I guess, I don't know. Uh -huh. um, and, but in that sequence, Deacon Frost confronts Blade and Deacon Frost wants to bring Blade over to his world. He's like, look, you know, stop uh, stop fighting us. Join us. Let's rule the planet. Blade's not going to do that. That's not his gig. Well, yeah, because Deacon wants... Well, Deacon wants Blade's blood so he can perform the blood ritual at the end of the movie. Turns out Blade's the chosen one. Blade's the chosen one, basically. Who fulfills the prophecy. Yeah, he's the Neo. Uh, but So they have that confrontation in Chinatown. Doesn't go so well. Blade saves a little girl. Deacon Frost and his cronies then meet up at Whistler's garage. Torture Whistler. Uh, bite Whistler. Blade comes back to the garage. Goes, oh man, I can't kill my friend. Whistler's like, give me your gun. Leave it with me and I'm going to blow my brains out. And he does that. Spoilers. Whistler comes back in the sequel. And he's way I cooler. so. Yeah, yeah. I don't... I couldn't figure out how that worked. Well... He dies, but then the vampires set him up in an Eastern European blood bank, and they've been keeping him alive on vampire blood, but then Blade cures Whistler of his vampirism, and he's back to being just plain old rad cool Chris Christopherson. Do it, does Karen come back? No. No, Karen does not come back. She, uh, she is replaced by Norman Reedus as Scud, who's like <laughs> a younger version of Whistler. Is there the same sexual tension? I can't remember. No, there's not the same sexual tension. But let's talk about that. Let You know, this is the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. What did you think about the romantic relationship between Eric and Karen? Uh, it's barely there. Yeah. It's barely there. Like, she is in kind of a semi-hostage state because... 
Blade seems to be the only one who can protect her from the vampires. And she is not fully cured. The impression you get is that she could still turn into a vampire, that the concoction that she has been given by Whistler has... Didn't take. Didn't take, yeah. And so Whistler throughout the film is continually (laughs) rechecking her. Yeah, you know, get your affairs in order, you're going to be dead, girl. Yeah, and it's not until the very end of the movie where she thinks she finds the the key. Yeah. Which is uh, related to sickle cell. Yep. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. Um, but yeah, but they do have this kind of romantic tension. Mm, they so never bone. Not really. It's a symbiotic relationship. But like this, the sexiest scene between the two of them is the end of the movie when Blade has been put into that Iron Maiden-like device at the center of the ring that's going to bring the blood god. And he's being drained so that the blood can pour onto the circle of vampires. And, I don't know, they all, all skeletons all erupt out of all of them, fly around and fly into Deacon Frost, who then becomes a super vampire who can't be killed. Yeah. Uh, But he falls out of the Iron Maiden, Blade falls out of the Iron Maiden, and he's drained and, you know, he's dying. And Karen says, like, You know, suck my neck. Suck, suck my neck. And the way Norrington shoots that is like a sex scene. And he cuts it so that there is a thrusting element to her giving her neck to him. Well, and, and she's also starting to say stop. Yeah, she's starting to say stop because he, he, he's ble- bleeding her dry. Yeah. And there's this thrusting, there's this thrusting. And but when he a- stops and he, like, stretches out, he arches his back, it's like he's, you know, climaxed. Yeah. He, well, he's <laughs> certainly fulfilled by uh, her sacred fluids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you, so you, but you, there's always, there's always with vampires this sexual elements the fact that they are predators but there's no real romance is what you're saying yeah i'm saying that not really yeah not really there's more sexual tension between him and his mom okay spoilers that's huge (laughs) um we gotta talk about that sanan lathan is alive and she's been a pet slash girlfriend of deacon frost this whole time and have they been you know i guess they've been looking for blade he was her what is it called? Familiar. No, no, no. no. Well, uh, the person who turned her. <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should know. I've watched Buffy I mean, several that, times. That, I think that's... A, is there a special term for... Yeah, for You're the, my master or whatever? Yeah, I'm gonna... I'll Google it later. Okay. Um, but Deacon turned uh, Sanaa Lathan, Blade's mom, mm-hmm. into a vampire. And she's been living her best life as a vampire this sire. whole time. I think it's a sire. Okay. But she's been living her best life as a vampire this whole time. Yeah. She loves it. Looking super hot. Yeah, looking super hot. She loves being a vampire. She, and and like, Blade, his mind is blown when he meets his mom and she's a vampire. Because he has, like, infant memories of her. Very crisp, clean infant memories. Yeah, that that only a movie character could. Uh... (laughs) And, and he stopped dead in his tracks when he meets his mom, and that's how they get the upper hand on him, so that they can put him into that Iron Maiden. Who named him Eric? She named him Eric, I guess. Like, within the few seconds between her dying? Yeah, she told the nurse, yo, that, that, that's my boy Eric. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so Blade's confronted by his mom. And to Lisa's point is there is an Electra-like complex she, going on. She goes, uh, well, your mother died year to, years ago, is what she says. Yeah. And then she, like, presses but, her lips. Yeah. She grazes her lips over his visage. She tells him this whole story right into his mouth. <laughs> it yep. is, like, creepy crawly town. Yeah. I, I turned to Lisa and I said, imagine that's your dad, Leo. <laughs> Leo. <laughs> like, can you imagine being that close to your uh, dad, Lisa? Or, no, I guess, my wait. mom, Denise? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe your mom, Denise. No okay. way. No way. Uh, She's cool. But, like, then, uh, after uh, Eric, after Blade drinks of uh, Karen, he confronts his mom, who they have, like, a little, you know, spat, a little uh, mother-son battle. Mm-hmm. And... Blade pins her to a wall, says, I'm going to release you, grabs a skeleton femur mm-hmm. from the ground, this pit of bones that they're fighting in, and impales her. I don't 
understand why that works. Because, like, why is he Well, any stake, of, any stake into the heart. I don't think that was really, like, that wasn't anywhere near her heart. And But it did work, Lisa. We saw her deteriorate into CG dust. I suppose. That's Where the, is the origin of vampires dusting? Did that originate in Buffy? I want to say that it originated in Buffy because of budgetary reasons. And also, you want to show it on TV reasons. Right, right, right. Um... So, I don't know. I do not like that type of dusting. I think that dusting should work with vampires over a certain age. To me, I feel like it should be in relation to the age, like, how long it's been since the human part died. Uh-huh. Like, if it's, like, Dracula and he's been alive for, like, hundreds of years, yeah, he'll dust. But if it, it's Clark from the office and he died, like, two weeks ago, then he should just turn into a corpse. <laughs> That's my theory. All right. But I really like that whole sequence, though. Whether it's near her heart or not, yeah. the, the murdering of your mob, who's now sexy and evil, is is um, it's sad. Yeah. Oh, it's hot? Did you say no, it's hot? No, I said powerful, it's but powerful. it was hot. No, no, it's not Those hot. It's sad. It's sad. It's creepy. It's gross. But mostly it's sad. Yeah. And I found it to be really effective. Yeah. I thought that was great. And then we have, you know, full-on battle time. Uh, Blade gets his groove back. He gets his sword. He gets his vest. And he goes after the remaining vampires. What I also like about the movie is that Karen is no mere damsel in distress in the film. Right, because they throw her into the zombie pit. Yeah, they throw her into the ghoul pit where she meets her co-worker who did not die back at the hospital but was transformed into a ghoul because Blade has worked into the mythology that some vampires don't turn like other vampires and, and, and sometimes they turn into these disgusting vermin-like ghouls. That'll eat anything. That'll eat anything. Human, rat, vampire, they're just hungry. But she's able to climb out of that pit. She fights him off with bones from other victims. Right, and then she is able to uh, secure a weapon from a vampire. Yep, yep. she blows a dude away with a shotgun. And she is kicking butt the whole time. She manages having... She fights that uh, British, European, Romanian girl. Yeah, or the the Ukrainian girl is running and she's just shooting wildly yeah, at her. Yeah, it kills her though. She does, totally yeah. does. Yeah, totally kills her. And, I and, like how in movies girls always go off to fight separately. Yeah, and I I, I just I liked that. Yeah. I, well, I don't know about fighting separately, but I liked that she wasn't relying on Blade no, to save her. She was no damsel in distress. Right, 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 right. And she's a scientist. And. Finally, you have the confrontation between Blade and Deacon Frost, and... Uh, having all of those, like, Those bat, bat demons fly into him. So he has, like, super regenerative powers. He now has, like, red eyes, even greater strength. He's, like, on uh, vamp steroids. Yeah, Blade cuts off his arm, and it grows back, in, you know, in a flurry of CG blood. Blade cuts him in half. And his torso goes flying, but then the blood reconnects the body parts. So he's unkillable. Except. Except of that explodey serum that Karen has put together. The anticoagulant. That kind of looks like Blade's blood serum. That, and that's what Deacon Frost assumes, thinks it is. Because yeah. he'd never seen it before. Yeah, so he assumes that that's what it is. And when he sees Blade you know, uh, rescue it from the crevices of where it had fallen earlier. He's like, well, you know, why do you care about your serum? Serum won't save you now. And then that's when Blade darts him him with all the anticoagulant. And before he kicks the final anticoagulant into Deacon Frost's forehead. He goes full marshmallow in the microwave. Yeah, he says this crazy line. Oh, yeah. And I won't, you know, we're a safe for work podcast. I'm not going to say the whole line, but he says, uh, some mother truckers, except he doesn't say mother truckers, okay. always trying to ice skate uphill. And I love that line. I love it. It's gibberish. I've heard Brad say that line just casually around the house yep. hundreds of times. And I think that just in daily life, it makes way more sense but when you that, say it. But now that you've seen it in the movie, and actually when we... Uh, hosted the film tonight and we brought the audience down to take the group photo our one two three cheese was actually one two three 
uh, some other truckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. We, you had 50 people screaming that quote. As best they could. As best they could. Uh, Lisa. Yes. So you've heard this quote, and now you've seen it in action. How effective was this quote within the context of the film? Not at all. It seems <laughs> a little random. <laughs> it's super random. There's lots of good lines in Blade. And that's a... I mean, I love that line. It's very cheesy and wonderful and delicious. But, I mean, you, that's the kind of line you have to, like, set up. Where it's just like, we see Deacon Frost trying to do some stuff throughout the film that seems hard, difficult. Like, ice skating uphill. <laughs> and then... Then I could say, like, okay, he is always trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> but, like, as far as I'd seen, he never even once failed at doing anything ever. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, it got a good reaction from the crowd yeah. when it occurred. And, uh, yeah, I, I love that. I love that. Okay, so we got that line. And then, yeah, as Lisa said, he balloons up into this CG. I don't know. It's like... It's like many balloons. He, he, he's very pustuous and... He, to me, he se- seemed like a garbage pail kid of uh, B-allergic reaction. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I thought about, uh, for anyone who has read the Jeff Lemire Travel Foreman Animal Man comics, there are creatures within that line of books that look very much like the climactic Deacon Frost. Oh, what about Dupe? Uh, well, He's Dupe is cute. way more handsome. Yeah, that's cute. <clears throat> Dupe is way more handsome than ballooned out Deacon Frost. Yeah. But it's 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 not as bad an effect as I remembered. The worst effects in the film for me were the, the bat. Well, I was going to say the bat demons coming out of the uh, mouths of the vampires when Lamagra was forming. Oh, I don't know. What blood? Oh, you... you all blood. All the CG blood? All the CG blood. Like, there's just, like, this classic 90s thing where they must have just figured... Like, the first texture they figured out was smooth. Yeah. So they're they're always doing CG blood where it's like, wow, look how smooth and shiny it is. Yeah, it does not work. It does yeah, not work. Yeah, it's bizarre. It doesn't look like liquid at all. But I like I liked the blow-up thing. Yeah, that's pretty great. And then that ends uh, Deacon Frost's Reign of Terror. Karen and Blade are reunited, and they exit the temple, which apparently is like just in, the a, city. in like an office building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Deacon Frost is like, "Look, we lost it. Like all of the other vampires forgot that we had this." Yeah, and I'm just like, "Well, it's in an office building, like not that far from Fifth Avenue." Yeah. Uh, so they win, and Blade goes on a mission to Moscow. But you forgot the moral of the story. Oh, what's the moral of the story? So Karen has come up with a cure. Yes. And right. she's and she op- and he was opting to take the cure so he could live a normal life. But now that he's been through that experience and she offers him the cure, he goes like, "No, this battle isn't done. I'm going to continue. I'm going to take all of the pain." and all of the guilt and all of the distress that comes with being the Nightwalker so that I can continue rescuing people and ridding the world of vampires. Right, right, right. right, Which goes to show, like, you know, whatever your personal plight is, sometimes that's something you have to overcome to to be able to do what you're on this planet to do. Blade has to accept who he is. Yeah. There's no, you know, like, this is Blade. Blade's the daywalker. Yeah. You know, he's got a job. Yeah. Uh, So then he goes and continues that job to Moscow, where he slices up uh, another nasty dude, taking a girl to uh, what's probably a Moscow version of a blood rave. Yeah. The end. Blade. So is there anything from Blade that you would apply to your life? Did you take any life lessons? Oh, our relationships side of things? Or just Uh, in life side of things? uh, Relationship with yourself side of things? I mean, I I think the message that you just wrapped up there, uh, you know, accepting yourself and realizing uh, who you are and applying that to your best potential, that, you know, we could all be Blade at the end of this at the end of this movie. Also, you know, Karen, she could have very well just stood back and let Blade protect her and continue to be frightened of him, but she was able to understand and see where he was coming from, and she used her expertise to make herself useful. But also, Blade, when you have a 
vampire in front of you, don't play with your food, man. Kill it. Kill it! If you play with your food, if you keep letting it go like Donald Logue, he's gonna cause problems. Probably not for you, but other people. Yeah. So don't play with your food. Kill him. And Blade learned that at the end when he finally confronted Donald Logue. And instead of cutting his hands off again... Uh, he machete through his chest. Yeah, he garrots him to death. He has like this special razor wire that oh, comes yeah. out of his belt, and he pulls the head off of Donald Logue. And Donald Logue was wearing Blade sunglasses, and Donald Logue's head is <laughs> spinning in the air, and the glasses are spinning. And Blade catches it, puts the glasses on, and then techno music kicks on. Uh, I think it's Prodigy actually. Oh, really? Kicks on, and uh, that's when he goes to town. And so wonderful. That was another great moment in the movie. Uh, but yeah, those are those are my relationship uh, relatable factors. I think um, there was also a sweet treat. Right. Well, we have to talk about the presentation. Yes. You know, uh, it, today is my 40th birthday. I feel a little weird about that, but I am 40 years old. That sounds really old. That sounds over the hill. I think uh, you're standing at the base of the hill. We can definitely see the hill. Right. Right. But you're not over that hill. Right, right. And I'm not planted in it. So that's good. <laughs> that's <is> good. <laughs> and I can still put away the cake because Lisa uh, went ahead and ordered a special blade-themed cake. Yes. I, I found a wonderful baker in Winchester. She actually is one of the sponsors of the Lost Weekend Film Festival, which is a biannual film festival at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester. And uh, her website, her bakery is called Serenity Ridge, and she specializes in cupcakes, and she has special flavors. So, and this, so... The cake was a chocolate cupcake with cayenne pepper in it. It was delicious. I don't think I've had a chocolate cake that was that moist and delicious and chocolatey. And so that was amazing. And then it had a, um, I think it was a cream cheese buttercream It was so tasty. So good. And then there was a sheet cake. Yeah. And on the sheet cake was cake Wesley Snipes. And it said, happy birthday, Mother Truckers, except it didn't say Mother Truckers on it. It didn't say the other thing either, because there were asterisks and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but it, we all know what it said. <laughs> yep. You know when I say Mother Trucker, you know what I'm actually saying. Yeah, so thank you to Tammy at Serenity Ridge. Those were a hit. We got um, uh, mini cupcakes to hand out to the crowd, so everybody who came to that screen and got a cupcake. Yeah, we did a trivia where we gave away some Blade comic books, and that was really cool. It was a lot of fun. I, I I love our still awesome series that we do with the In the Mouth of Darkness podcast at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester. I'm really excited about next month. We're doing another comic book adjacent movie. We're doing Sam Raimi's Dark Man. Excited about that. Yes. Um, you know, we might also it's be been screening. a while since I've seen it. I'm still Dark Man is it. so good. Yeah. I love Dark Man. Yeah. Uh, you know, like if you like Spider Man, you're gonna love Dark Man, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Sam Raimi Spider Man. Uh, but yeah, Lisa, yes. um, watching Blade, uh, you're definitely going to want to watch Blade 2. Again, in the yes. future, right? Yes. Like, I'm, I'm contemplating when we get home putting Blade 2 on the TV. I have work in the morning. It's 11.38 Okay, PM. okay. We probably won't do that then. Uh, and, but do you have interest in pursuing the character in comic book form? We are a comic book podcast. Uh, Sure. But you're not <laughs> not you, necessarily. You don't come away going like, I love that character. I need to read well, every I, adventure. I love Wesley Snipes. Yeah. But I've seen vampire stories. There are other places I can get vampire stories unless there was an amazing writer. Like I would read I don't think I have read a great blade comic yet. Uh, I interrupted you, though. Who would you read? Who do you want to see write Blade? Oh, I don't know. Oh, you were just going to say, I would read, and then dot, dot, dot. A Mark Wade. A Mark Wade Blade. 
Wayblade. That rhymes. I, I, that might be the only reason I said that name. I like Grant that. Morrison Blade. Oh, that would be cool. Matt Fraction Blade. Yeah. Um, okay, okay, all right. Uh, yeah, I'm still looking for uh, the great Blade comic. I actually wrote an article for Film School Rejects called The Blade Reading List. I wrote that after Comic-Con when Mahershala Lee was named uh, the successor of the character. And I would point our listeners to that. Head on over to Film School Rejects, see what I think are the top five Blade comic books out there. Uh, but I am still waiting for that great one. Uh, All right, so that's going to bring it to the end of this special road trip episode. Thanks for putting up with us and the poor audio quality. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't worry, we are going to return to our regularly scheduled program next week, we promise, as we kick off our Sex Criminal series, written by Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky. Lisa, who's our relationship guru that we're pairing with that title? Dr. Esther Perel and her book, Mating in Captivity. If you want to get a little primer on her and her philosophy about keeping the sex life alive over a long-term relationship, uh, Google out her TED Talk because it really distills down concepts and ends with a couple tips too. And Lisa and I have already read or reread volume one of Sex Criminals and we were good to go to record the episode this weekend but Brad's birthday shenanigans got in the way I'm afraid. Turns out everybody wants to hang out with you for your birthday. Everybody wants to hang out. Everybody wants a piece of Brad. So we are going to record that episode real soon and we'll have that out on time next Monday. I'm excited for that conversation, Lisa. I don't want to, like, get into it right now, but I had a lot of fun reading Sex Criminals this week, and I'm excited for where this series could be going because I have not read all of Sex Criminals, and, uh, you know, I I have no idea where Fraction and Zdarsky are going to take us. But... Oh, I almost started talking about it. Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm not going to do it. All right, so tune in next week. Lisa, until then, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Brad, where can our listeners send their... Look, a fox! Uh, No, it's a cat. That's a cat. It's a cat. cat. I got excited. Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. And, of course, you can follow the podcast at CBCC Podcast. Uh, Check out our Twitter and Instagram. And you can commit to our podcast by subscribing on Spotify, Podbeam, and iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, why not give us the gift of five stars and leave us a little review? It really does help the podcast. But if you want to see that cake, the blade cake, Mm -hmm. uh, go to our Instagram. It's there. Uh, It's amazing. (laughs) Tammy, you are an artiste. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. Bum bum ba da bum bum ba da ba.